Good morning, everyone. Let's go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 23 this morning. When I was in college, some of you know that I was saved when I was in college through a ministry of uh, Campus Crusade for Christ. And um, there was a saying, and it's I'm sure many others have used it, and I'm sure many of you are familiar with it, but whenever people would vent frustration or difficulties or... You know, we were on a secular campus and occasionally we'd get pushback from the people, especially if there were some street, you know, some street preachers or whatever that were in the, the college and preaching. Well, obviously people would whine and complain and curse us and stuff like that. And so the phrase that was always repeated was, God is still on the throne. That was our way of encouraging one another. God is still on the throne. It's easy to forget that when things are kind of crumbling around us, isn't it? Um, we're facing unprecedented times here in the U.S. and other parts of the world. This recent stuff with the Ukraine now has caused a lot of dismay and, and other things, not just for the people in Ukraine, but their neighbors, but even other parts of the world. There's been some who have said that the world's reaction to what's happening in the Ukraine with the sanctions on Russia and that um, when you're dealing with a despot and a crazy man, you never know how they might respond and whether you agree or disagree with the way things have been handled, who knows what tomorrow may bring, right? But the thing we have to remember is that God is indeed always on the throne. He is sovereign, and how he chooses to work things out according to his purpose and plan, we don't always know. And so we wait and we watch, but we have to constantly remind ourselves that God is indeed still on the throne. He has not lost control. He knows all things, but beyond that, he also controls all things. So God is still on the throne. We're going to see that in our passage today. There's three things we're going to look at with the Apostle Paul here. The first thing we're going to look at is the mob's plot against Paul. Then we're going to look at God's providence in dealing with that. And then finally, God's plan. Again, I'm going to use some alliteration with the P's. I think I can promise that I'm not going to do that next week. Yeah, right. I don't know where I'm going next week, right? So let's go ahead and look at the mob's plot Remember Paul had been arrested and he had taken opportunity to speak to um, the council and, and others. And um, they obviously weren't happy and decided they want to tear Paul up and the soldier has to or the commander has to come in and rescue Paul to protect him from being torn apart by the angry mob. And so our passage picks up where we left off last week with the commander sort of rescuing Paul and saving him from the mob tried to tear him apart, which this mob was actually the Sanhedrin. So when we look at it this morning, or when we look at this here, we're actually in verses 12 through 15 to start. Let me go ahead and read that. When it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who formed this plot. They came to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a solemn oath to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. Now therefore, you and the council notify the commander to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case by a more thorough investigation, and we for our part are ready to slay him before he comes near the place. Now this Jewish mob here, obviously they form a plot to kill Paul. They're likely some of the same Jews that had attacked Paul and dragged him out of the temple back in chapter 21 and tried to kill him. Now this was a sizable group. You notice it says that there are at least 40 people here. They bound themselves together, it says, with an oath not to drink or to eat until they had killed Paul. In other words, they're on a hunger strike. That's a term many of us might be familiar with. We've heard it throughout history. Now, when you think of an oath, 
you probably think more of like a promise. But in this instance here, this oath is more akin to a curse. In fact, if we were to do a literal translation of what they said, it would be this. We have cursed ourselves with a curse not to taste anything until we have killed Paul. In essence, what they're basically saying is, may God strike us down if we taste food or drink water and haven't killed Paul. Now the problem with an oath like that, they were pretty common back in Paul's day. The problem is they were pretty much meaningless because even the Jewish leadership and and their own laws um, allowed escape clauses. In other words, they could make such a claim that God curse us, but God lets us off the hook if we just can't accomplish it. You know, like if we have something else to do, by the way. Or if something just gets in our way and we're not able to do it. So it was pretty much a, a meaningless oath. Now, a few weeks back, I don't know if you remember, back in mid-January, there were a bunch of college students who showed up at the steps. I think, I don't know if it was the, if it was the Capitol or Supreme Court, but they showed up at the oh, U.S. Capitol. They showed up on the steps. Their goal was to force the Senate to pass something called the Freedom to Vote Act. Basically, the Freedom to Vote Act is a federal bill that is intended to basically usurp the rights of the states to manage their own elections. It's a federal theft of states' rights. And so these students all show up thinking that's the way to make elections fair. We know it's quite the opposite, to be real honest. And so they show up and they decide to go on a hunger strike. We're not going to eat until they pass this bill. Well, after just a few days, they were complaining about being hungry. It was rather funny. Some of them dropped out. By the sixth day, they finally got fed up, got impatient, and they sort of broke through the police line. They then stormed the capitals, went up onto the capitol steps, and I remember one of the individuals watched them on video, actually, said, unfortunately, the hunger strike strike was no longer being cared about by our senators. Our futures and our lives are hanging in the balance of this bill. So we're going to have to escalate now. In other words, they got tired of getting hungry, couldn't wait any longer. They wanted to go down to the McDonald's and get themselves a burger, so they had to bust through the line, make a little bit more noise, and hope that they could get the attention that way. Hunger strikes oftentimes are just meaningless. Now, I'm not saying that Hunger strikes in the past haven't been effective in some instances, but generally, it's just more words. Try to manipulate is what it is. It's a tool to manipulate people. Oh, look at us. We're miserable. We won't eat. We're going to kill ourselves if you don't do what we want you to do. And that's kind of what the Jews are doing here to the Sanhedrin, trying to manipulate their leadership. So if you look at this, the mob actually enlists not just the Jewish leaders, but they actually enlist the Sanhedrin in their plot. So maybe their hunger strike in this case worked. I'm going to suggest that it probably had no impact, that it's just that the Sanhedrin and the rest of the leaders are so corrupt they were more than willing to go along with the plan. Didn't take a hunger strike. In fact, if you look at verses 14 and 15 again, oops, let me jump down in here. They came to the chief priests and the elders and they said, we have bound ourselves under this oath. Jump down on the verse 15. Now therefore you and the council notify the commander. So what we've got here is the Jewish elders, the leadership in Israel. You call this maybe they're politicians, if you will, but also the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin happened to be, um, this is what's referred to here as the council. It's their supreme court, the highest legal authority in the land. And so we've basically got this mob that comes to the Sanhedrin and the elders and demands of them that they do something. And the way they lay this plot out is they come up with this ruse. This ruse is, why don't you claim you're going to have this more thorough investigation of the Apostle Paul? You're just going to have him come on down so you can investigate him. 
But their plan was really to ambush Paul, to kill him as he was being taken down to this meeting. It was all this giant ruse. And what's interesting about this is they don't ask the Sanhedrin to do this. The phrase, you, and notify, you tell the commander this, is a command. It's in the aorist tense. In other words, they were mandating and dictating, telling their elders their leaders, and the Supreme Court, exactly what they were to do. They gave them the marching orders. Now think about what's wrong with this. First and foremost, the mob of Jews was operating under the pretense that they were upholding and defending Moses and the law and all that was good and right. They were protecting the temple. But they were ignoring two of the big ten, weren't they? They were bearing false witness and thou shalt not murder. And so here these individuals are, claiming that they have the moral high ground, they're doing what's right, they're defending Moses, but they're ignoring Moses' very own words. They claim they're defending the law, but they're willing to violate it. In essence, they believe they're on God's side, but in fact, we're in opposition to him. How hypocritical is that? What does that say about Israel's leadership, if you think about that? The chief priests and the elders were supposed to be the moral and religious leaders of Israel. They're supposed to uphold the law. And here, this mob comes to them and basically commands them to violate everything that they should stand for. And as we'll see, they intend to go along with it. The Sanhedrin was essentially the Supreme Court, with the high priest serving as the chief justice. These leaders were the very ones who were supposed to shepherd Israel. They were supposed to teach them right from wrong. They were supposed to uphold the law. And yet here they are following the mob like sheep. What I find interesting is that when you think about what happened when they assaulted Jesus, it was the leaders that walked through the crowds and told the crowds what to do and they began to chant. And they wanted Jesus to be condemned and they wanted Barabbas to be released. That was the chief priests and the leaders that led that. But what do you see happening here? The whole thing has slipped on its head. Now it's the other way around. It's the mob that's dictating to them. Why do you think they were able to do that? I think after watching Jesus, they realized what kind of leaders they had. And they realized we can manipulate these leaders. We can force them to do what we want them to do. They have no backbone. They're just as, well, they wouldn't admit this, but just as immoral and corrupt as we are. What's our takeaway with this? I think we see the same kind of mob mentality and corrupt leadership happening today. I really do. We have these mobs who claim that they're fighting against bigotry and hate and racism and violence and oppression, but yet they march into downtowns and they loot and they destroy and they attack. They're guilty of doing and promoting all the things they claim they're supposed to be against. We've got government officials who are supposed to uphold the law. They're supposed to protect the innocent and punish the guilty. They're supposed to promote peace. But what do we see more and more? We see officials who refuse to uphold our laws. They punish the innocent. They protect the guilty. They let them out of prisons without bail and how many other things. They protect those who act violently and tear apart cities. Some of you may have seen that uh, Amy and I posted some pictures on Facebook. We went to see the People's Convoy come through Columbus on Thursday. What a blast that was. Um, what's interesting is when that same convoy was planning to head drive through Illinois, the Illinois Department of Transportation or the Marshals or whoever it was that controls the highways up there, published a fairly pointed, stark letter. They didn't want them driving through Illinois. Um, warned them about all the, you know, make sure your 
practicing the laws and everything else. And so some truckers decided to post tweets by the same exact departments that when Black Lives Matter came through, they opened the highways up and transported, or actually ex, or, um, led them into the city to riot. They said, so you are willing to open the floodgates and block off traffic so that rioters can come into the city and destroy the city, but now peaceful truckers decided to drive through and you don't want us in your state. A little hypocritical, right? Well, they changed their story a little bit. They softened that, published something new, probably because they got caught with their pants down. Everything went well. They had a nice safe convoy through Illinois. Didn't, didn't shut down the traffic or anything else. It was all fair. Nobody, no cities were burned and no buildings came down or anything else. But that seems to be what we see today. Hypocritical leadership and the very people that are supposed to uphold our laws are violating. I'm going to give you some examples here. And I know I'm not supposed to get too political, but I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway. We've got an administration right now that instead of upholding our immigration laws, cracked the gates wide open. I love immigrants. My grandmother came across when she was 17 years of age from from, uh, Germany at age 17, didn't speak a lick of English, came across on a boat, spent three weeks traveling the ocean, came here, um, found a way to make a living, opened up her own seamstress shop, became a semi-pro golfer. I love immigrants. What I don't like is when somebody comes across our borders and violates our laws. And what I hate even more than that is an administration that says, why should we uphold the laws? Let's open the gates wide open and allow human trafficking and drugs and everything else come flooding across our borders. And then put them on planes and traffic them into cities around the United States in the dark of night without even letting those states know what they're doing. That's what we have with this administration. We've got federal government that's including the use of race in determining who gets certain COVID treatments. What's that about? We've got universities that are told to use certain quotas on who they can let in and who they can't let in. You know, shouldn't you just be able to go to college if you want to go to college, regardless of your skin color or anything else, as long as you meet the criteria for grades and other things? We've got a CDC that decided to force people out of their homes. What does the CDC, Center for Disease Control, have to do with people living in apartments? And yet this administration chose to use them to prevent landlords from paying their bills because you couldn't evict somebody that wasn't paying their rent. What does the CDC have to do with that? Well, it's because the federal government didn't have the rights to do that, so they find a way to manipulate the system. We end up with the federal government using OSHA to try to mandate that companies of over 100 employees force their employees to be vaccinated or not work. How? And I, like I said, I know we're not supposed to get political in church here, but you've got to speak to what's going on. And I use this simply as an example. I know that I swear every politician is corrupt. Maybe that's not true. I'm just simply making a statement. But So I'm not trying to be Democrat or Republican or liberal, liberal or conservative here. Well, all I'm simply saying is that we've got an administration right now, like many administrations in the past, that is much like this council in Paul's day, not doing their job. They're hypocritical. They don't uphold the laws. They don't protect the innocent. They're easy to manipulate. Think about that. I found it rather amazing that all of a sudden, the night, what is it, the night or the day before the president's speech, all of a sudden the science changes and no masks are necessary. Why not the day before? Why not a week before? You know, whether you believe in the masks or not, that's not the point. The point is that it's amazing how polls and other things manipulate politicians to change their opinions and it all depends on what the mob out here is manipulating them into doing and thinking instead of simply standing up and doing what's right. So I'll step off of my 
political rant for a second here. My point is simply, and we, again, we see it on both sides. I'm not a fool. You know, just because you wear an R on your chest or a D on your chest or just because you wear an L or a C doesn't make you more righteous or more... You know what? The reality of it is we live in a world right now where everything seems to be in flux with morality and leadership and, you know, it comes down to the individual. You will find some righteous men and women that serve and you will find some unrighteous men and women that serve. So oftentimes manipulated by the mob. And that's exactly what we see in Paul's day. So we see that here today. We see with the erosion of our religious liberties, our rights, policies. We talked about what was happening in West Lafayette with Faith Church there where the city council for the last decade at least has been doing their darndest to shut them down. I met with Pastor Jim I mentioned to you a couple about six weeks ago. Pastor Jim from Polaris Grace and our Grace Polaris and uh, I'll, I'll do my best to paraphrase him but he basically told me he said he had watched three hours of news the night before something apparently that he doesn't do on a regular basis but he said I sat there for three hours and watched the news he shook his head and he said if even one tenth of what I saw happening there is true we're in for a world of hurt and that's the reality church has to be ready for that there are mobs there are mobs and they have plots their plots are more than just destroying the church and shutting down Christians. It's to destroy culture, society. It's the work of the enemy. Plain and simple. So, the good news, however, has to do with God's providence. God's providence. Look at verses 16 through 22. We'll start and read just verse 16 to start with. But the son of Paul, I love that word, but. The greatest, most important theological word in the Bible is the word but. But... Of a single T, by the way. But the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, and he came and entered the barracks and told Paul. Now the mob may have had their plot, but it ran head-on into God's providence. Now, divine providence refers to God's governance over all things. He directs them according to his purpose and his plan. That's providence. God is in control. He guides and directs. Works things out according to his purpose and his plan. So here we find something happens when this mob makes their plot to derail God's purpose and plan. Paul's nephew hears about this plot. This is the first and only mention we have of any of Paul's relatives in the scriptures. The word for son here indicates a young man, probably in his late teens or early 20s, is a fairly young man. Luke does not tell us how he learned about this plot. We just know that he did, and he takes it to Paul. Paul's in a military barracks. He's not actually in prison. He's in a military barracks. The centurion later refers to him as a prisoner, but it's more akin to what we might refer to as sort of a loose protective custody. Paul is under arrest. He's being watched, but he's got a lot of freedom. We see that back at the end of verse 12, I think in the middle of chapter 24, where Paul's given some freedom. So it's not like he's confined in a prison and chained to the wall like he and Silas earlier. But he's got some freedom. He's able to see visitors. People can come in and out and see him. And so that's why this nephew of his is able to come in. But it appears based on the letter that the commander actually sends to Governor Felix that he was trying to figure out what to do with Paul. He didn't really believe Paul was guilty. He didn't believe he deserved death or imprisonment, but he had this angry mob outside that he know he knows are after Paul. And so he's got Paul sort of in the barracks protected. And like I said, his friends and others are able to come and go. And so this nephew shows up because he had heard about this plot of the Jews. Once 
Paul learns about this, he asks the centurion to escort him out to the Roman commander. Look at verses 20, or 17 through 21. Starting in verse 17. Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Lead this young man to the commander, for he has something to report to him. So he took him and led him to the commander and said, Paul, the prisoner called me, or called to, I'm sorry, Paul, the prisoner called me to him and asked me to lead this young man to you since he was, since he has something to tell you. The commander took him by the hand and stepping aside began to inquire of him privately, What is this you have to report to me? Verse 20, and he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down tomorrow to the council as though they were going to inquire somewhat more thoroughly about him. So do not listen to them, for more than 40 of them are trying to wait for him and have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they slay him. And now they are ready and waiting for the promise from you. So Paul's nephew goes and informs this, forms the centuria of this plot and goes off to the commander. I think there's a couple of things that stand out here. One of them is that uh, the amount of information Paul's nephew knew here is pretty remarkable. Think about this. He knew where they were, he knew they were planning this fake hearing, all the, under this guise of trying to you know learn more from Paul. He's fully aware of that plot. He knew there were more than forty involved with the, the uh, mob. He knew that they had bound themselves with an oath, and he knew about their plan to ambush Paul. Now this is some young kid, basically young teenager, maybe young adult. It's pretty remarkable that he somehow was able to discover all of these details. We're not told why or how, we just know that he did. The second thing that stands out is the commander's response. I want you to look at the progression here of this commander. He's a fascinating individual. During his first interaction with Paul, he assumed that Paul was the troublemaker. Remember when he saw the mob dragging Paul out of the temple, the um, fort that he was at overlooked the temple. It was fairly high, and they could see into the temple grounds from the top of this fort. And there was a long set of staircases that went all the way down into the temple. And so as he's looking up there, and as the, as the centurions up there had seen this, they all rush down, and the commander assumes that Paul is the troublemaker, and so he immediately arrests him and chains him to two guards. So that's where we start. The assumption that Paul's the one that's the troublemaker even though he's the one that's being beat by the mob. We've got a pretty strong bias, I think, there. After Paul addresses the mob, the commander appeared to still believe that Paul was guilty because his next plan was to take Paul into the barracks and torture a confession out of him. Remember, they got all the way down to the point where they strapped Paul up between two posts, and as they were getting ready to take out the tools to basically flag him, Paul says, uh, can you do this to a Roman? So up until that point, the commander still believed that Paul was guilty. His attitude began to change, however, when he learned that Paul was a Roman citizen. He even intervened after that then to save Paul's life. You know what's interesting is that he probably would have saved himself a lot of trouble had he just let the mob go ahead and kill him. Now, he might not have wanted to do that because Paul was a Roman citizen, but he probably could have figured out a way to say, I tried, I did the best I could. You know, there was a huge mob and I didn't have enough, whatever it is. But he intervened because he saw that Paul was about ready to be torn apart. What happened between that and how it all started with Paul being the guilty party? It's not really clear, but this commander's heart towards Paul seems to have been softening to some degree. In fact, we find out a little bit later that he believed Paul was innocent of anything that was deserving death and even imprisonment. 
And we see that in the letter that he writes to Felix, the governor. And so his whole entire attitude towards Paul had changed over the course of this event. What I find interesting is that in the middle of this event, Paul basically pleads, makes two pleadings. He gives two speeches. He speaks to the crowds, and he speaks to the Sanhedrin. You wonder if any of that had an impact on this commander. What's interesting to me about this is you remember when the Jews dragged Sosthenes before Galileo, or I'm sorry, Gallio? Basically, the Jews were beating him, and he basically just went, fine, turned his back and let them do about their business on him. No compassion at all for Sosthenes. We find quite the opposite here with this commander who intervenes and goes out of his way to rescue Paul, but then also send him to Felix. And we, again, well, as we'll get into his letter a little bit, I think next week, um, actually, I'm sorry, it might be today, um, we'll see that his heart has somewhat changed towards Paul. I want you to read verses 22 through 24 with me now. So the commander let the young man go, instructing him, tell no one that you have notified me of these things. And he called to him 200 centurions and said, get 200 soldiers ready, or I'm sorry, two of the centurions and said, get 200 soldiers ready by the third hour of the night to proceed to Caesarea with 70, 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. 24. There was also, or um, there were also to provide mounts to Paul and to bring him safely to Felix, the governor. So he accepts Paul's request to listen to the young man. Um, he takes Paul's young man by the hand, we're told, just in the verses up above that, takes him by the hand, takes him away privately, talks to him, shows a genuine desire to know what's happening. He apparently had no reason to disbelieve Paul's nephew. He went to great lengths to protect Paul, we see now, because what he does here, he orders two of his centurions to put together a force of 470 men. When you do the math, that's what we find there. There are 200 soldiers, there are 200 spearmen, there are 70 men on horseback. That was a sizable force, 470 men that this commander puts together to protect Paul. They're ordered to bring Paul safely to Governor Felix, who is in Caesarea, that's about 50 to 60 miles away. He even provided mounts for Paul, meaning horses. And you notice that mounts is plural there, which means he gave Paul two horses. One might, to bring, might, might be to bring some personal belongings. We're not really sure. But another possible suggestion, and this is something that, that both of the commentaries that um, usually when we study through a passage, Dustin and I will buy one or two really good, solid, um, what we call technical commentaries, kind of help with the languages and, and other things. And interesting because both of the, the commentaries that I've referred to in this mention that one of the reasons Paul might have been provided with two mounts, two horses, was to provide him an opportunity to escape if necessary if they were attacked. Meaning, one horse is killed, the horse that he happens to be riding on, he's got a second horse that he can jump on. Now that might be speculation, but there's some evidence that they may actually be the case when looking at similar episodes much like this in history. Regardless, this commander goes through great lengths here now to protect Paul, to take the plot seriously. I believe, and this is going to be my personal opinion here, that what we see happening in these events is God's providence on display. I don't believe that there's any other way we can explain, first off, the nephew learning the details that he did. Do you think that the Sanhedrin and this mob of 40 individuals would be out there broadcasting what their plan is? Probably not. They probably want it kept secret. It's supposed to be an ambush. It's not an ambush if you put it in the paper, right? 
If you announce it on social media, you know, the People's Convoy is now in Hagerstown, Pennsylvania, or uh, Hagerstown, Maryland. Um, they went to this racetrack. They've been there for a couple of nights now. And people are upset because they haven't announced their plans. They've said they're not going to go into D.C. They have no plan to shut the city down. But everybody wants to know what they're doing. Well, because they haven't announced their plans, people are now saying, oh, they're government informants, they're spies, that's really who these leaders are, and they're all, you know, all the cons- Christians sometimes, sometimes can be the most gullible people. We come up with some theories of our own and conspiracies of our own sometimes, you know, and so now the very same people that were supporting these truckers are now saying, oh, because they're not, you know, telling us what they're going to do, they must be government officials that are sort of spying on the organization. I don't, you know, whatever. My point is that they haven't announced what they want to do yet, probably because they don't want everybody knowing what they're going to do until they actually plan on doing it. This morning they kind of announced they're going to drive around the outer belt, I think once today, twice tomorrow, maybe four times the next day. Okay, Trying to make a statement without getting a lot of hate, because if they shut down Washington, they may face a lot of hate. But regardless, my point is that you don't announce beforehand exactly what your dangerous plot's going to be. <laughs> and so... They didn't do that either. But somehow, Paul's nephew, not just some random stranger, but Paul's nephew. Do you think that's God's providence? Probably. A perfect stranger might not have gotten access to Paul. Might not have gotten access to the commander, the centurions. So God moves, and the way that he moves, puts Paul's nephew in a place where somehow he can learn all the details, great details, not just there's a mob, some kind of plot, but specific details. And his entrance in to see the commander is ultimately because he happens to be related to Paul. Friends and family get to come in to Paul. Paul's able to talk to his guard. The guard's able to go to the commander, take the boy with him. Now, we could argue things like that sometimes just happen. And they can. But I think what we're seeing here is God's providence. I think we would say the same thing with this commander. This commander is the tool that God uses ultimately to move Paul from Jerusalem to the next city, Caesarea. Because this commander has an awful lot of authority and an awful lot of power. Anything could have happened with Paul. Like I said, he could have just ignored it, let him, much like Gallio did, just wash his hands of it. And you might expect that because of the way that he assumes Paul is guilty to start with. But somewhere along the line... You know, we're told in the scriptures that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin. I don't think it stops there. It's not like the Holy Spirit only convicts the world of sin. God uses the Holy Spirit to move people the way that he wants to move people. I think about the way that God used the Pharaoh in Egypt. Ten times Moses goes before him, and ten times we see that God moves and works in the Pharaoh. We're told sometimes that the Pharaoh's heart is hard. We're told sometimes that his heart was hardened. Sometimes we're told that his heart was just hard. But either way, God moved even in the hardness of the Pharaoh's heart for him to open up the doors and let Moses go. And so I believe that what what we see happening here is God's providence at work. The Lord told Paul that he would bear his name before kings, we're told. The Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, meaning Paul, to bear my name before Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. Remember that? comes from Acts chapter 9, when Paul was knocked off his horse. Again, an act of God's providence. And Paul was told through Ananias, you're my chosen instrument. I'm going to send you before kings. That hasn't happened yet. 
But that's where Paul's going. In fact, the very next step in this process is before Felix, governor. Then it's before Festus. Then it's before Agrippa, king Agrippa. What's interesting, too, is that the night before all of this started, Acts chapter 23, verse 11, remember what happened to Paul? Paul was in his room in the barracks. We're told that Jesus stood beside him and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. God has a purpose and a plan for the Apostle Paul, and his providence allows him to work that out. And so we see that here with this plot of the Jews coming head on into God's providence where God says, no, you may have your plot, you may have your angry mob, you may have your political leaders on your side, you may have the Sanhedrin joining in on this, but it doesn't fit my purpose or plan. And so we see this plot of the mob come head on into God's providence. And he begins to work these things out to do exactly what he promised Paul that he would do. Take them to Rome. What's our takeaway with this? For me, as I look at it, it's interesting how um, sometimes God's providence isn't always carried out in these big, bold, supernatural events. When we think of God's sovereignty, sometimes we think of that, you know? I look into the book of Revelation and I see God's thundering hand come down and you see his amazing sovereignty, his power, his authority just crush the opposition in the world. And he establishes the new heavens and the new earth before that he establishes the millennial kingdom with Christ. That, sometimes we think of God's power and his sovereignty in that, but oftentimes God's providence is carried out in these little small things. It's often seen through these seemingly coincidental events like Paul's nephew just happening to learn about this plot. The Roman soldier having his heart softened being convinced that Paul is innocent when he's got... And remember that you know these, these commanders and these governors were under a tremendous amount of pressure by Rome. You know, they had to keep the peace. And, and it wasn't easy between the Jews and the Romans. There were all kinds of revolts, Jewish revolts against the Roman oppressors. And so these commanders oftentimes had to figure out a way to appease the Jews. And so it wasn't always fair the way they operated and behaved because they were thinking more about boy, if I make the right decision here, it's going to upset the Jews, and now i got a problem, you know? And, and yet here's this commander who, there could have been a, a bunch of other ways out of this for him. But God somehow, in his providence, uses him, convinces him that Paul is innocent, and he protects him from the mob, and ultimately becomes the channel, the avenue through which God accomplishes his purpose and plan, and at least gets Paul on the next step of the road at Caesarea, testifying before governors. Everything is under his control, even when it doesn't necessarily seem like it. I think we will see that, and we should see that now. There are, I think about what happened recently in, in West Lafayette, you know, where the city council, I mean, they're pushing hard, and all of a sudden, oh, we're done. The excuse they gave was, we can't afford a lawsuit. God's providence. That's all it is. God's providence. So the takeaway, again, I think for us is that we shouldn't always expect the big thundering displays of God's sovereignty. Look in the small things that happen, the way that God works, and it looks sometimes that it's just coincidental, but it's God's sovereignty. It's God's providence that works these things out. The last thing I want to look at here is God's plan. Just briefly here, look at verses 25 through 30. So the commander, verse 25, wrote a letter, and it said this, Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. We find there for the first time this commander's name. Claudius Lysias. 
To the most excellent Governor Felix, greetings. When this man was arrested, he's talking about Paul here, was arrested by the Jews and was about to be slain by them, I came up to them and with the troops and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And wanting to ascertain the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council and found him to be accused over questions about their law, but under no accusation deserving death or imprisonment. When I was informed that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, also instructing his accusers to bring charges against him before you. So the soldiers, in accordance with their orders, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipas. That's halfway between here and Caesarea. But the next day, leaving the horsemen to go on with him, they returned to the barracks. When these had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. When he had read it, he asked from the, or he asked from the province he, what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing after your accusers arrive also, giving orders for him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. God's plan was that Paul would witness all the way to Rome. He said that he would basically witness before leaders and before the Jews, before the Gentiles, but also kings even said, We see that plan actually being set in motion here. Um, Antonius Felix was the Roman governor of Judea and Samaria. His main headquarters, if you will, was in Caesarea. That's where the court was. It's interesting that uh, the commander refers to him here as most excellent governor Felix. That was just flattery. That's the way you talked um, to leaders. And in some respects, we we do that here. You know, um, when we watch the state of the... I was going to call it the State of the Union Address. <laughs> the State of the Union Address, I'm sorry. Um, the State of the Union Address the other night. Um, you know, they had, the way they announce him, you know, the president walks in and the sergeant of arms says, the president of the United States, and everybody stands and applauds. That's kind of the dignity that you give to the office, regardless of the man that's in the office. And that's kind of what this commander does here. But what's interesting is that he was everything except excellent. Let me tell you a little bit about this governor. He was a former slave who had been promoted to governor by Emperor Claudius Caesar. According to Roman uh, Roman historian um, Tacitus, he was known, and this is a quote, to be cruel, licentious, and base. The same Roman historian referred to his behavior as tyrannical. He had been married three different times. In fact, his third wife, Drusilla, it's kind of funny, isn't that a Disney character? Drusilla. Um, His third wife, Drusilla, he had stolen from another king, King Azazus. He was also corrupt. We actually see that in Acts chapter 26 where he was hoping that Paul would bribe him even though he knew Paul was innocent. So he was a corrupt governor. His rule as governor only lasted seven years. He was filled with all kinds of violence and trouble, so much so that he was recalled back to Rome because of his cruelty to the Jews and his misconduct in office. In fact, he was actually tried, convicted, sentenced to death, death, but only escaped death because his brother, Paulus, happened to be really good friends with Emperor Nero at the time. He was a corrupt, wicked governor. In fact, some historians say that the tensions between the Romans and the Jews escalated significantly during this time because of the way that he behaved as governor. That's who Paul is now going to. The commander's letter is both an attempt to protect Paul as a Roman citizen, probably, but it's also a political move, probably, to uh, put him in the possible best light. This commander probably had aspirations, much like every commander and politician did in those days, you know. 
You always want to be found favorable by those people you're dealing with. And we know that because partly as we look at this letter, you noticed, did you notice that there's a little bit of exaggeration in this letter? You know, remember when he saw this happening, he went down and bound Paul in chains, but notice here in verse uh, 27, when this man was arrested by the Jews and was about to be slain by them, I came up to them with the troops and I rescued him. No, he didn't. He went down and he thought he was guilty and bound him with chains. But he's not going to say that because he's a Roman citizen now. Right? You can't bind a Roman citizen without a trial. So he's covering his backside, you know. Um, then he goes on, and wanting to ascertain the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. That's probably true to some respect. He also talks about how he rushed him right off to Felix, you know, here. Well, not really. I mean, he kind of kept him in town for a little bit. And there's just some things as you go through it here that, um, he, you know, he's being a politician to some degree, too. You know, he's flattering Felix and trying to put himself in the best possible light. You know, I'm a good commander. I did everything I should have done. And, you know, I'm not going to fault him too much because I think generally that I'm not saying he was saved. Clearly not that at all. But that I think God had worked on him a little bit. Again, he's doing the right thing here. He's sending Paul up to Felix. He's trying to, you know, he even tells Felix, I didn't find him guilty. He didn't have to do that. He could have just said, this man was doing this. You take care of him. But he even gives, you know, lets it slip a little bit that, hey, I didn't find anything in him. So I'm sending him up to you. So whatever you want to make of that letter. But the question we have to ask is why he did that. You know, why did he send him up to Felix? Well, possibly to protect Paul, we said. Possibly to relieve himself of any responsibility. Um, I think there's another reason. Anybody want to guess what that was? God's plan. God's plan. That's why this commander sent Paul to Felix. Now, he may not have been going, oh, this is God's plan. I'll send him to Felix. But that's the way God works. He doesn't need to announce his plans to somebody. He can use circumstances, situations, people to accomplish his purpose. So really the answer of why Felix sent, or why this commander sent Paul to Felix was because it was God's plan. Now, God did announce that he would send Paul to Rome. And so this is just one step in the process. And we see that the commander actually does succeed in doing just that. He mounts up these 470 soldiers. Halfway through, they stop at a city, and part of the men then go back because they're now out of Jerusalem. Paul is probably safe at this point. The rest of the men make sure then that Paul is delivered safely before Felix. But there's another little piece to God's plan here, or sovereignty if you want, and his plan is that the governor didn't have to accept this. You know, he could have just said, no, he's innocent, send him back. Um, If you think he's innocent, we'll send him back to you. But he didn't. He went ahead and he accepted, and he's now willing to hold his own hearing on this. And so another element of God's purpose and plan taking place there. So what is our takeaway from this? You know, it's pretty simple as far as I can see it. And that's, God is simply sovereign. He's going to accomplish his purpose and plan. It shouldn't shock us. One of the things, you know, I think it might have been Dave Malin one time. Um, You know that my habit has always been to try to oscillate between Old and New Testament. You know, there are many in evangelical circles today that are presenting the Old Testament as not having a whole lot of value. In fact, one famous preacher said that we ought to disengage or disconnect from the Old Testament. My habit has always been to do both, back and forth as best we can, right? And I think it was Dave Malin came out there one day and he said, I finally get it. It's one big story, isn't it? And that's the reality of it. We have watched God's plan unfold from Genesis 1. 
And it's all gone according to God's purpose and plan. Now, we don't always see that because we think, well, the whole thing with the flood, no, that was part of God's purpose and plan. You know, well, the whole thing with Israel being in, you know, in Egypt for 400 years in slave, no, it was part of God's plan. He makes these promises to Moses, makes these promises to, you know, Jacob or to, um, to Joshua going into the land. They didn't do the job they should have done, you know, maybe it didn't go as well as, but you know what? Every step of the way we've seen God accomplish his purpose and plan. Because why? He is sovereign. So how does that apply to where we're at today? You keep hearing me talk about how we are in unprecedented times here. And it would be easy to us to get all freaked out and to get all worried, to get all fearful and afraid. We're losing our freedoms, which I mean, one of the neat things about watching this freedom convoy come through is, man, there were American flags. There was the occasional... Joe Biden signs, I won't repeat the phrase, but, you know, and, but overwhelmingly, American flags everywhere, and I love that, you know, because it represents freedom and, and other things, you know. But it's not really ultimately about that. God's accomplishing his purpose and plan, but none of us likes to see what's going on here. None of us likes to see what's going on in Canada with the, who was it, one of the senators this week announced that they want to put Canada on a list of countries to watch for violating religious freedoms. We should be concerned about that because we see that going on in Canada and other parts of the world. Um, We saw a pastor up there arrested because they were holding services during COVID stuff against the government's mandates. We see stuff going on here with the current administration relaxing rules that um, the previous administration kind of put in place to reinforce our religious liberties that have been under attack for years. And so we get all freaked out, we get all worried, and it'd be easy to forget that God is sovereign. We may lose our rights and our freedoms here. We may be told we can't preach the gospel. We may be told we can't talk about specific issues in the scriptures. Doesn't mean we won't. Those things may happen, but does it mean that God is no longer on his throne? Has he fallen off? No, absolutely not. Just as Israel stumbled and fell, the church will stumble and fall, but God is still on the throne. And that ought to be our confidence and our hope. And so when we look at this passage today, what we see is this angry mob has their plan, but... God's providence doesn't allow that plan to do what they intended. And it's ultimately because of his plan, and he will always accomplish that plan. And we get to go along for the ride. Now, Jesus warned his disciples, I'm going to warn you about these things ahead of time. Why? So you don't stumble. We're warned about the church's apostasy in the New Testament. So what do we do? Remain hopeful and confident because of God's sovereignty, his purpose, and his plan will be worked out regardless of what we see crumbling around us. Our hope is in that, his providence and his purpose and plan. And so instead of keeping our eyes on all this, we got to keep our eyes on his abilities because he is working out his purpose and plan. He promised Paul, I'm going to take you to Rome. That's where the book ends. Why? Didn't matter what the angry Jews wanted. Didn't matter what the governors or what the king wanted. God takes Paul to Rome, and we're going to see that play out. That encourages me. Yes, I don't like what's going on. I have a certain amount of fear. (laughs) Keep my eyes on Christ. Keep our eyes on Christ. He is able. He is able. He is able. Amen?